0: Welcome to PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, CEO of Jonathan Ball Publishers, Eugene Ashton, chats with author and historian Charles van Oenselen regarding Three Wise Monkeys, Three Wise Monkeys takes us on a journey through the complex interplay of contradictions, silences, oversights and misunderstandings that emerge when South Africa, an emerging Anglophone, Protestant, industrial and urbanizing state, develops alongside Mozambique, a lusophone Catholic, commercial and rural colony. Across three volumes, Charles von Onselen unravels the interconnected relationships between South Africa and Portugal's chronically weak East Coast colony. He explores these connections through the migrant labour system, the tourist trade, the rise and fall of ANIM radio, and the extraordinary tale of the Lorenzo Mark lottery system. Prepare to be captivated by Three Wise Monkeys, as it presents a thought-provoking new perspective on the entangled economic, political and social dynamics that shaped 20th century South Africa, often at the expense of neighbouring Mozambique. Sit back, relax and enjoy this episode of PageCast.
1: Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Jonathan Ball PageCast. I'm uh, Eugene Ashton and this is a first for me, so forgive me if I'm a little bit nervous, but I am speaking to probably my favourite South African historian, possibly my favourite historian in the world, Professor Charles van Onselen, who I've known for more than 25 years. We go back a a long way, Charles, to the honours class at the University of Pretoria. So welcome here this morning,
2: and um, I look forward to talking to you about Three Wise Monkeys. Thank you, Eugene. It's always a pleasure talking to you and um, to kick around some ideas.
1: Um, I might just say on that score that we have a sort of path plotted, but we may go off the path depending on on where it takes us. So let's just start, Charles, Three Wise Monkeys. It's a big, big subject. How did you come to it? How did you come to Mozambique and wanting to do this?
2: Right. I suppose, you know, one of the things that strikes me is when you look at South African historiography is the way that historians have been complicit and actually enthusiastic about embracing the nation state. And if you look back and you think about Southern Africa as opposed to South Africa, then actually in terms of African history and world history, the colonial imperial period is pretty short-lived from the 17th century in the southern part of Africa here. There were still colonies in the 1890s, the South African War, And then you have a coming of Union, and the white South African state lasts from 1910 to 1994, and people forget about this. So one of the things that a historian can do, I think, is to take the long suite of history and look at the long durée, using the sort of Bridalian ideas, And you can look at the geography of the place and say, how does time and space play out here in a more intelligent way? And how can that inform sharper questions for historians? So it's against that backdrop of saying, well, you know, this is really quite a youthful region in Africa. And when you look at the assemblage of colonial and other forces and imperial forces, don't take the boundaries too seriously And don't take the time frame too seriously. And when you do that, what other items come onto your agenda?
1: And what other items do come onto the agenda for you?
2: Well, I suppose the single most notable one, Eugene, and that comes through the three volumes, is if you look at the contemporary and the recent colonial past, what you struck by is that in Southern Africa, you've got South Africa cheek by jowl with Mozambique. Southern Africa, South Africa in particular, is obviously Anglophone, it's industrial, it's urban, and crucially, it's Protestant. If you look at Mozambique, by contrast, Mozambique is Lusophone, it's commercial, it's rural, and it's Catholic. Now, if you stand back as a historian and you say you're putting two states side by side, and the one is Catholic, and the other is Protestant, this doesn't always work particularly well.
1: Doesn't work particularly well because one would anticipate friction between the two states.
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, Because of the the historical legacies of Catholicism and Protestantism, um, playing out regionally with different powers behind them and the patterns of industrialization and the, the rhythms of everyday life, you would expect this not to be too happy and too constructive a relationship, and yet, when you look at South Africa and Mozambique, this is not characterized by conflict. It's actually characterized by hidden cooperation.
1: Hidden cooperation. So, before we go into into that aspect, which is the fascinating bit of the of the tale, let's just talk about Mozambique. Just in a brief sort of economic um, history of of Mozambique. Where does it come from? Why is it that um, that we have this Catholic state on the on the on the borders of South Africa? Um, just a short sort of overview.
2: Right. Well, in 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 reality, much like the Cape, Moz- Mozambique is an afterthought in the colonial in the colon in the colonial imperial sense, in that <clears throat> the Portuguese who ran the the Cape in the fifteenth century are, like everybody else, are looking for the pathway to the east. And it so happens that the geography of Mozambique and India are linked by the monsoons. And so in the age of sail, you get a fairly easy passage from India to Mozambique and from Mozambique to India, depending on the thing. But it's a way station. It's not an entity in itself. And it has this elongated shape along the east coast, and it's used as a way station, and then subsequently, of course, as a center for slavery. And slavery is abandoned very, very slowly by the Portuguese state, which controls Mozambique, and formal slavery only ends in 1878, um, which is fairly recent. If you think that then that South Africa and diamonds were discovered in, in in the 1860s, you can see it's almost a regime where there's been formal chattel slavery in operation and it overlaps with the emergence of the industrial labor market in South Africa. And this underdevelopment and especially the exploitation of of black African labor, then it starts to wane in Mozambique exactly at the moment that South Africa starts needing enormous quantities of cheap indentured labor and the hidden contract between south africa and mozambique is indentured labor and it's operationalized by the vdorst native labor association for the gold mines and you then get a traffic in indentured labor between mozambique and south africa and that is the crucial that's the crucial pivot point at which the articulation of interests between south africa and Mozambique
1: takes place. So this is this is your. Um, I always have a um, running joke with Charles that he has a big book and then a small book, or a small book and then a big book. He always leads into the subject, and the lead into the three wise monkeys was, of course, the night trains. So let's talk a bit about this idea that South Africa industrialises on the lung of southern Mozambique. I mean, what is the what is the impact of? of that on the on the economic prospects of Mozambique and how does it set up the transactional zone that we're going to move into
2: okay. um,
1: in the discussion?
2: Well, it's indentured labour between the mines, which obviously is central to this this contract. And the whole point about that labour is that it's a criminal offence to break your contract. And this is a relationship which becomes reciprocal. South Africa is getting cheap African mine labour under very oppressive circumstances in the sense that real wages for African mine workers from Mozambique, especially southern Mozambique, which is what we're talking about here essentially, fall in real terms from about the time of Union right through into the 1950s and 1960s. So this is an enormous present for the South African industrialists and it's the central story of diamond and gold mining and being underwritten by this cheap indentured labour. On the Mozambican side, um, this is a a strip which is not very encouraging in southern Mozambique for agricultural enterprises. You've got a port which we'll come to, and that's the one geographical advantage that it has, that it articulates Lorenzo Marx, as it then was, now Maputo, um, links to the Witwatersrand. But for the Portuguese administration, what you're getting is um, taxable income in cash in hard currency as opposed to soft currency of the Portuguese state in the escudos. So there is a, a working economic relationship here between the South Africans and the Mozambicans at the expense of Africans. And the nut trains is really the sort of physical link between recruiting labor, transporting it en masse, to the restaurant, and then returning mine workers at the end of their contract back to southern Mozambique.
1: So that's the important bit, the train line that runs between Johannesburg and Lorenzo Marx, as it was. And of course, this sets it up for a discussion around the tourism that gets set up, the horizontal dancing that is tolerated in the port of Lorenzo Marx and not necessarily here in Johannesburg. So let's talk a bit about the tourist economy that grew up between these two
2: states. Right. Well, if you take them in historical sequence, Eugene, you'll find that Johannesburg as an early mining town has all the characteristics of mining mining towns. Alcohol, drugs, prostitution, which in turn rests on the fact that there are more males around than there are females. That's quite often a sort of sociological configuration that you also find in port cities early on johannesburg could look after itself in terms of criminal activity alcohol prostitution drugs a nightlife all those things but progressively after union the state starts developing sufficient muscle and sinew to restrict organized crime and organized recreational facilities for bachelor stroke single men because remember the coming of a white family is really something that only happens between the two world wars in johannesburg now as the state closes down these opportunities for alcohol for prostitution for drugs um, and for having a good time however you define that in johannesburg it gets restricted and closed down so people use the train line and go to mozambique over the weekend and because it's catholic the propensity to legislate against prostitution hours for drinking alcohol is less. So you can see how when the one starts declining, the other starts opening. The important thing, the hidden thing behind this again reverts to our opening observations about the proximity of a Protestant regime, Stoke province, with a Catholic one. And it's as if South Africa, when it becomes more socially repressed, and especially later on when Afrikaner nationalists are putting the brakes on any forms of recreation, alcohol, cinema, interracial mixing, any of these things, the holiday venue acts in part as a pressure release valve for all the Protestant things that you're denied in South Africa. You cross the border and you go into Mozambique. And so it's as if there's a psychological traffic between South Africa and its repression and the relative freedoms of Mozambique and that's what one of the volumes is focused on and explores
1: so why does the why does the South African so let's turn it on its head why does the South African state tolerate this and do they tolerate it uh,
2: they tolerate it reluctantly and there's an ongoing ideological and political noise about the neighbors and what you can do in the neighboring state but it's never articulated fully from state to state. So you'll struggle to find a letter or a set of diplomatic exchanges between the Mozambicans and the South Africans or the South Africans complaining to the Mozambicans because both parties know that at the end underlying this is the African labour contract for indentured labour and that if you start fiddling with things on the margin, you'll imperil the main economic works. And the main economic machinery is the cheap mine labour. And so there's muttering and there's static and there's noise and there's discomfort, but never sufficient to make this an issue of policy difference and to sharpen relationships between the two regimes.
1: And of course, 1948 becomes a watershed moment in in South Africa's history in, in many ways, it leads into a discussion about a certain radio station which um, transmits from, from Mozambique, Alem Radio. And let's talk a bit about LM Radio. Firstly, where did LM Radio come from? What was the bit of history of it? And then leading into the discussion of what eventually happens with LM Radio. Well,
2: this is in two parts. And if, if you look, as you say, at the start of it, um, radio really starts developing in its commercial and national technological dimensions in the 1930s in South Africa, as it does elsewhere in the world. And the South Africans aren't quite certain how to manage it, but because the propensity is always for centralised control, it goes to the South African Broadcasting Corporation, which opens in 34. In but it opens up with exactly the same set of Protestant backdrop in the sense that, what you've got here is a radio station that's been designed by Lord Reith of the BBC, and there's to be no Sunday broadcasting or very limited one. There's to be no commercial advertising entertained by this thing. And in South Africa, in addition to having this do Protestant backdrop where you won't even broadcast sports results on a Sunday, let alone play popular music, this becomes very, very restrictive. And so... Some entrepreneur in Johannesburg, a man called Mac Harry, sees the possibilities of this and goes down to Lorenzo Marks and acquires a concession for a radio which can take commercial advertising, which will broadcast on Sundays, which will provide popular music. So here again, you can see one of these working misunderstandings. The Portuguese know full well that LM Radio is going to be broadcasting to the biggest market in the country in the form of the Eduardo Front, and the SABC is hamstrung because it can't compete commercially with Lorenzo Marx Radio. So what, what we've got here again is a set of a set of tolerated differences, which no one is willing to call out and stop because it will, it would jeopardise the supply of African mine labour. And also, of course, in the case of radio, you've got the added problem, radio waves behave very badly. They refuse to have passports, they refuse to be (laughs) confined to a single territory, and they just go where they go. And people who buy the wireless, as it was then known, can listen freely to Lorenzo Marx radio. Now, to get to the second part of your question, this is all pretty well tolerated until about nineteen forty eight, when Afrikaner nationalists, driven by the Dutch reformed Church and commanded by one Pitt Mayer, who is the chief Bruderborn man in the FRK, the Federation of Afrikaans Kultivers, and of the Bruderbond, are very, very hostile towards the fact that it broadcasts on a Sunday, and particularly it broadcasts popular music on a day when Good citizens ostensibly are at church. And Lorenzo Marx obviously profits from this Protestant repression of a Sunday and Sunday evening by deliberately setting up popular music programs, noticeably the LM hit parade on a Sunday evening. And so as you go through the 40s and the 50s and, and the 60s, this becomes a real thorn in the shoe for the SABC, which is commanded by Pitt Mayer, and they make consistent efforts to acquire LM radio, the commercial radio, via the market interventions and to buy um, the company out. But the Mozambicans, this is a money spinner, and they like hard currency, so they refuse to sell. Now, in the end, what happens here is that as the border wars play out, in Angola and in Mozambique, Pitt Meyer and together with the help of P.W. Buerta and others start putting pressure on the Portuguese military to sell LM Radio. And in the end, it is sold. And LM Radio is then really functionally owned and operated by the SABC. So you can see the whole trajectory from the working misunderstanding between a Protestant Catholic country, popular music, the added muscle coming from a South African state that's increasingly centralized and is um, politically repressive and acquiring LM radio and shutting it down. What is What becomes of LM radio? LM radio ostensibly goes off the air in, in 19, uh, 1974, 1975, and the SABC have got a shadow station called Radio 5, which is modelled on the LM model, so that the day when Frelimo closed down LM La Radio, um, Radio 5 takes over in South Africa. And so you get, at one level, a sort of effortless transition, but, of course, it's never quite the same. Exactly. Um, Pitt Mayer, Brother 787 um, you once said to me
1: that you regard him as the absolute embodiment of evil. Let's talk a bit about the man. Why, why would you say something like that?
2: Right. I, I, I think if there, there are two or three figures which are central to the building of the South African repressive state. And by this um, repressive, I don't mean only in terms of it being a police state reverting to the use of the police and the army and other instruments to repress people, but culturally. And central to the cultural drive to centralise and control and turn it into a real Protestant state with a deeply authentic, organic, nationalist identity are Nico Diedrichs on the economic front and Pitt Meyer in cultural terms. This man has great control both over the Afrikaner cultural organisations and, of course, through the Brudermund, which is a secret male Afrikaner National Society, which does the deep thinking behind apartheid. In personal terms, the man's proclivities and ideology are unashamedly fascist. These are admirers, he and Diedrichs and others, of Nazi Germany and of the values that lead up to the Second World War, and continue to use those patterns of thought and repression as they play out in recreational life and, in his case, in the SABC. And as a commander of propaganda, on the one hand, he's got access to a mass audience, and they also split up the radio stations for Africans on an ethnic basis, so you get a radio specific to the Zulus and, and specific to Sutu and other peoples. So it's divide and rule. And then they have the central propaganda mechanism for getting at white South Africans and propagating a narrow racial Afrikaner nationalist Calvinist ideology. So this is the closest I think you can come to an all-rounded neo-Nazi stroke fascist.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I'm firmly of the belief that a very critical biography needs to be written or critical history needs to be written of all of this. The state articulates so well that one of, the, one of the fascinating, and it's a whole book that you dedicate to this, um, is the establishment of the lottery. Uh, just a little bit of a background with, with Ruth Naylor and, and how, the, how that, again, what the two states articulate with each other. So l- lotteries become illegal in South Africa and, and how it grows up in Mozambique.
2: This is, again, um, y- you, know, you point to exactly the right things. And I think if we start with the building blocks, imagine a mining town filled with bachelors, entrepreneurial, criminal, all the rest of it. And gambling culture, together with prostitution, is central to mining towns. And Johannesburg is no exception. And the Kruger government of the late 19th century, very conservative, very Calvinist, is outraged by gambling. And these successive laws are passed in the 1890s to prevent gambling. But throughout this period, Gambling continues, notably, of course, in in the form of horse racing, which no one will ever touch because it's it's class basis. It is so entrenched with the wealthy and the well-off that no one would actually try and close that down. But the story of South Africa from 1910 through to 1965 is progressive closing down of gambling outlets. By 1965, all gambling in South Africa All gambling, with the exception of horse racing, is illegal. Indeed, if you try and set up a card game with your cousins in your house and you're not playing for matches but you're paying for rands, that is technically illegal and you could be subject to a raid. Now, lotteries fit in in this panoply of gambling. And as as with the radio, someone realizes that well, if you base the lottery just over the border and sold the tickets under the counter in South Africa, this could be enormously successful. And it takes an Australian bookmaker who's an extraordinary character, um, a brilliant entrepreneur with a pronounced criminal streak, like many businessmen, um who goes and acquires the lottery concession and the lottery is then run for Lorenzo Marx and the tickets are sold here. And to revert to your earlier insight and point, this is again one of these examples of a working misunderstanding. The lottery becomes the single largest illegal business in South Africa between the two world wars. It irritates successive South African governments and it irritates particularly the Afrikaner nationalists who eventually close it down by just sending in a whole series, over 200 people into the postal system and invading all posts that Ireland's incoming or outgoing, and they succeed in closing down the LM lottery. But between the wars, it's a spectacularly successful business. And working class people in particular are trying to buy these lottery tickets and hence, the quest for wealth without work it 's a strand in all of us who would like to acquire the wherewithal to the point where work becomes optional so Charles, in the end
1: um in the end, the nationalist state is capable of shutting it all down, and uh, I wonder, does it serve their interests in your estimation? Does it serve the interests of the nationalist state to shut down the relationship between Mozambique and in South Africa. I mean, this is, you know, the realm of speculation, but by shutting down the lottery, by shutting down the tourism, eventually, principally because of the war, of course, not being able to go down there. What is the effect of that on on South Africa in the end?
2: Well, I, I, I don't know. I think it's in one of the in, the backdrop and the answer to your question is, some of this is inexorably linked with the fate of the mining industry and South Africa's capacity to produce yes, of course. cheap no. African labour domestically. So two things are happening your reliance on Mozambican labour is gradually reducing and the volume of cheap labour coming from South African sources is increasing. So economically, you can see how the the hidden contract is no longer there and therefore the way that the Portuguese state wants to hang on to the privileges of Lorenzo Marx radio and the lottery and so on declines and the South African state is becoming stronger, the white Strait. So that's the background to how. Now, what are the long-term benefits and 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 disadvantages? As you say, lie in the realm of of of, of speculation. But I suppose if you revert to what we started with here, is the status quo anti? What what was South Africa like before these contracts, before these social things? Then it was fragmentary and loose. And um, you you didn't have any neat, coherent contractual arrangements. But as this fragments now, we can look back and we can see the borders are again starting to to evaporate and evanesce. And in the relationship to Mozambique, there's a huge illegal traffic, which is in the spirit again of Protestant state versus a Catholic state and... The biggest One of the biggest illegal businesses now is between selling stolen cars from South Africa into Mozambique. Swaziland, Eswatini, is a corridor that, that by and large facilitates this. If you look at the border with Lesotho, you would find that the thing that characterizes the border strip itself is considerable entrenched stock theft. And so we're getting to a situation where, again, the borders are fragmenting. And we're seeing the country, the region as a whole, as a transactional zone of, of economic activity rather than discrete nation states with tight contracts and the way it. it's, it's being eroded from below. And what we're seeing is a reversion to really aspects of 19th century Southern Africa. So these three volumes speak to how the system was set up and what the hidden informants of and shapers of those contracts were. And now we're seeing, from our present perspective, how these things are retreating, breaking, disintegrating. And the book really, in that way, the three volumes address both our past, how it evolved into the near present, and the fragmentation of the present.
1: My last question, Mozambique. Where do you see it going for Mozambique, 50, 100 years hence?
2: Mozambique, as you know, is a long coastal strip, And it's always been in geographical and in political and social terms really divided into three parts, if I can be very crude. Northern Mozambique, Central Mozambique and Southern Mozambique. Southern Mozambique is adjacent to South Africa and it has in Lorenzo Marks a remarkable port historically and now Maputo. Now that port has declined over the 20th and early 20th century. But as South Africa's infrastructure collapses with a new set of incompetent racist nationalists, so the reliance on Maputo as a port is now growing again. And there's an increasing volume of traffic between the Restaurant and South Africa and Maputo port, which is becoming increasingly competitive again. So here we're again seeing one of these replays of something that was present in 1910s and now in 2010 is acquiring a new relevance. So to answer your question, southern Mozambique is always going to be attached as a satellite of greater or lesser weakness with South Africa. Central and northern Mozambique are relatively disadvantaged. And as you can see, there are insurgent movements in northern Mozambique, Many of them informed are Islamic in, in in their outlook. The southern part of the country is Catholic. And so again, there are variations on these themes which are playing out. The long-term fo- future of Mozambique, it will be divided into a northern and southern part, and the southern part will be the satellite of South, South, South Africa.
1: Charles, thank you very much. I, um, I've watched with great joy from the sidelines um, this uh, this book set of books emerge over the last decade, and um, I must say it's immensely rewarding to be able to read everything now. And thank you for for taking this on and doing it. I'll remind our listeners that the book is available, the box set is available from all good bookstores, and also that it's a limited print run, so the box set will not be repeated.
2: So go out there and, and get it. Charles, any last comments? I'm just deeply indebted to the publishing house, to Jonathan Ball for taking on such a huge project and uh, being able to market it successfully in a novel form. It's very exciting for an author to be able to take an extensive project like this and to be able to see it in box set form, which allows readers to read the whole sweep or to engage in any one of the particular interests they have. I'm a very privileged and lucky author.
1: As are we, that's the Three Wise Monkeys by Professor Charles Van Onselen. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.